16 months ago, on January 7th of 2018, that was a great year, wasn't it? Great time. Uh, seems like a long time ago. A lot has happened um, since then, and we have journeyed through the book of Luke over that time period. And as we have, I, I want to take you back to the beginning, uh, where this gospel book begins, and today we'll end with these finishing words from Luke. And so I want to remind you how Luke started this gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what Luke, Luke writes to Theophilus. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me, Luke says, as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And so Luke, if you remember, went to eyewitnesses. He went to the disciples. He went to those who, who, who witnessed Jesus, his life and his resurrection. He also, we know, hung out with Paul a lot. He was a companion with Paul in his travels, most likely spent time in, in prison with Paul as well. And he researched, he investigated the life of Jesus. Luke himself was not an eyewitness, but because of the witness of others, he, he learned about the life and the works of Jesus Christ. And his goal here is to write to Theophilus, one who has come to know Christ. It seems that Theophilus, he's called the most excellent, which was a term used for governors back then in the Roman government. And so he was some kind of dignitary. He had an important role in the government, and he was one who came to faith. And most likely he came to faith under Paul's ministry, or at least was maybe trained or discipled by Paul a little bit, because in Philippians 4.22, we hear about those in Caesar's household who were being ministered to and who were there as well, and it seems likely that Theophilus would have been part of that. And so here Luke is writing to this one, and he wants him to know something, and I want to read to you verse 4 and, and for you to understand why Luke wrote this gospel. He says in verse 4, so that you, Theophilus, may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. He wanted Theophilus to know the exact things about Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did. And he didn't want to leave anything out. And so Theophilus had been trained, he had been discipled, and Luke wanted to make sure he knew everything about Jesus Ultimately, not that he was this knowledge bank, right, but that his life would continually be changed and that God would use him to be a ready and bold witness for him. And that could mean in his role, in his job as a dignitary, as a governor, in Caesar's household, to the Roman government, to witness of Jesus there, in his home and beyond. And as we finish today and as we hear what Luke's purpose was from the beginning, and as we have journeyed through this book over these 16 months, I pray that you have grown, obviously, in knowledge of the exact truth of who Jesus is and what he did. But ultimately, today, as we finish, it's always good to finish stuff, right? As we finish this letter, we have here 
uh, really a charge to us all, that we too would be ready and bold witnesses for Jesus. And so today, that's where we're going to end as we put a bow on this book and, and thank the Lord for it. Um, but I want us to begin in, in verse 36, as George read for us today, and I want us just to see the context here through these first uh, few verses and then get into what maybe you would call the, the practicum of what God wants us to walk away with today. And so look at verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. And so Jesus is now standing in the midst of the 11 disciples and probably some more. Uh, Cleopas and his buddy, who's also a disciple of Jesus, are also there. And they're there because they're telling the disciples, hey, we were out walking on the road to Emmaus and this guy walked with us and it seemed like he really didn't know what was going on in Jerusalem, and so we told him what was going on, and then all of a sudden we're sitting down and we're breaking bread with him, and he starts breaking the bread, and we start realizing, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. This is him. He is alive. And so when Peter said he went to the tomb and he wasn't there, he, he, he's not there because he has risen. And so the disciples have gone to tell the other 11, and as they're doing that, Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, peace be to you. And then verse 37, they were startled and they were frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. What did they think about Jesus? They thought there he is in their midst and they still couldn't believe that this is really him in the flesh. In fact, they thought they saw like a ghost, a, a spirit. But we see here the proof that he was not just some spirit, but he was literally the risen Lord in the flesh. And how do we see that? Well, Jesus says, first, hey, here are my wounds and my hands, my side, my, my feet. Come and touch them. It's kind of like what he says to Thomas in John uh, 20. He says, hey, Thomas, come put your finger in the holes in my hands. Come put your hand in the side of, of my, in, in my side and, and know that it is me. And so he wanted them to give them proof by touch, but also he's speaking to them. And so he's communicating with them to, to show that I am he, I, I am in Jesus in the flesh. And not only that, he's eating with them to show that, hey, listen, I am truly him in the flesh. And what do the disciples do? They doubt it. And we've all been there before. We've all had doubts. Maybe we're even struggling maybe with a little bit doubts today. I don't know where you're at, but we've all struggled with doubts before. And so Jesus here is meeting a need that they have, a need to, to believe. And Jesus wants them to believe. And so he's going to give them proof. It is me. But it says here something interesting. If you look at verse 41, it says they could not believe because of their joy and amazement. You have ever had anything like that? Where you were so excited and, and amazed over something, you just couldn't believe it. And maybe in yourself you were doubting, is, is this just too good to be true? Could this really 
be. I can think of, of many things. When I was marrying my wife, I thought, man, wow, it's too good to be true. When I was experiencing the birth of our first three children, I thought, oh my goodness. And then on our fourth, I really got blown away. I'll never forget, my wife and I, we were driving up to Sherman, Texas, about an hour away, and, I, and, and for, for over a year, we had waited on a, adopting a little girl, and then three weeks before that, we found out uh, that we were going to receive uh, this precious little girl, and, and we had met her birth mom, and everything was just rolling on, and all, but all this joy and excitement my wife were feeling. And, and, and we, I'll never forget heading to the hospital that morning and all the details and plans were together and we get there and I'm in this surreal moment of like, is this really happening? And I was, it was just this, these three, four days of amazement of, is this really happening? Really, really happening. I kept telling myself, yes, this, this is happening. This is amazing. And then when we finally got to bring her home, it's like, man, is this really happening? Of course, on the way home, my wife and I are looking at each other and we're thinking to ourselves, because we're crying because we feel like we just stole a baby. And so, (laughs) but we really did. I mean, that's how we felt. So, and we're just telling each other, no, this is God's plan and this was Felicia's parenting plan for us to parent this precious little child. But I remember just the whole way thinking this is too good to be true. Wow. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. So I was trying to fully understand what is happening here. It's like they couldn't believe it because of joy and amazement. And maybe it was just a little bit like that. Maybe you've been there before. You've experienced stuff like that. And that's where these guys were at. They just couldn't believe it, but yet there was joy and amazement. And so Jesus is here wanting to meet their needs so they would know for sure Yes, it is me and your presence. I am here just as I said I would be. And so this is the context of what Jesus is going to say in his final words to them before he ascends into heaven. And as he told them back in John 14 and John 16 that he was going to leave them, not as orphans, he would not leave them alone, right? But physically he would leave them it is, he is now preparing them for that. So look what happens in verse 44. He says, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them this, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is an amazing group of verses here. Right? So Jesus takes this opportunity to tell them that, hey, listen, this is all part of God's plan. This is all part of God's plan. You thought when I, when I died that that was it, that, that was all, it was all over. Your thoughts of the kingdom of God coming here on earth, you thought that all our dreams are gone. But no, this is all part of God's plan. Yes, 
I died, but here I am. On the third day, I rose again, and I have appeared to many over a 40-day period. That's what Jesus is going to do to as many as 500 at one time and to his disciples continually. He's going to meet with them through this 40-day period after his resurrection to prove and show, yes, I have conquered the grave, and this is part of God's plan. So what does that communicate to us about the plans and purposes of God? Is that God's plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. Just like it says in Job 42, 2. And so here we see God's plan for Jesus to do what? To die, to raise again, and to ascend as well. We're going to see in this text as we finish up today. But Jesus does something here. Look at verse 44. He reminds the disciples what he taught them. He reminded them of their teaching, their training, that he would fulfill everything written about the Messiah in the Old Testament, which is mentioned here, and he uses the three major divisions to talk about the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, Prophets, and the Psalms. And so, but remember, the disciples are struggling with doubt, okay? So what does Jesus do? He goes back to their training. He goes back to their teaching, and he opens their mind to understand the scriptures that, that he communicated to them. And here he's gonna open up their minds to understand the fullness of what he taught them and based on what has happened up to this point so that they would understand, okay, that it is being fulfilled, that this is God's plan. And he does that, he uses three verbs to communicate or to summarize God's promises that he made in the Old Testament about Jesus as the Messiah. And what are those three verbs? Let's look at here real. It says here in verse 46, that Christ would suffer. So that's the first verb, that Christ would suffer. And so where do we read about the Christ suffering in the Old Testament? Maybe a few different places, right? Let me give you a few places. Psalm 22, all right? So when he's talking to them and saying, hey, remember what I said about the law of Moses, about the prophets and the Psalms? Okay, I, I suffered. And so he wants them to remember, remember what the Psalm says? Remember what Isaiah said? And so let me give you just kind of a taste of that. Isaiah 52, listen to what the prophet said in verse 13. He, he says this, it'll be up on the screen for you. It says, behold my servant, will prosper and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And so he, Isaiah is talking hundreds, centuries, um, hundreds of years, centuries before the Messiah would come. He's talking about the Messiah who will come and he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But listen to more, Isaiah 53. It says this about the Messiah in verse two. It says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that he would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. This is talking about Jesus, the Messiah. He was despised, he was forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and he, we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Where did that happen? On the cross. And then listen to what it says. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. That's Jesus. And so it's amazing in this moment as he's sitting with the disciples in this room as risen, as one who's 
bore their sin. And he's saying, hey guys, remember, I talked to you guys. I taught you guys what Isaiah was talking about, the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, that's me, guys. I just did that. I just suffered for you. And then he says also, in verses five and six, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, ch- the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Guys, I don't know if you could hear a pin drop in that room when Jesus was saying this. But Jesus was declaring these things in the room and opening their mind to the understanding of what this means. That what Jesus just did was for their sin so that they could be forgiven. And so here he says, the Christ must suffer. That's the first verb. The second verb he uses is the word rise, right? In verse 46, that the Christ will rise again from the dead. So where do we read that out in the Old Testament? It's a few places. Psalm 16 is one. Another one is Psalm 110, verse one. Let me read that one to you real quick. Listen to what the psalmist says. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. And so this is David speaking. This is a, in fact, we've talked about this in Matthew. We've talked about this in Luke before. But here is David saying, the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, says to my Lord. And so he's talking about the Messiah, right? It says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so can you imagine Jesus saying, hey, listen, I I shared this with you. David even spoke about me. And what does this mean? That, That, hey, me, the Messiah, Jesus says, is I am going to go sit at the right hand of God. So I died, but I rose again, and now we're going to see him ascend, and where he's going to go, he's going to sit at the right hand of God. And so here this declares that he rose again, and he is the one that was spoken about in the Old Testament. And so the Christ Messiah would rise. And then the third verb here, this is great, verse 47, it says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be what proclaimed. That's the third verb, okay? And so Jesus is communicating these things, all right? He's just talked about, hey, these things that I taught you in the Old Testament, talked about me suffering, talked about me rising, but even that the disciples, that there would be a people who would be raised up to proclaim a message to the nations, okay? There's quite a few places in the Old Testament that does that. One of them is Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse three through five. I'm having a little Bible drill action here on my up on the stage, because I didn't mark any of these. All right, so here we go. Isaiah 40, three through five. It says, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then listen to this. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And who's going to be the mouth of the Lord? Who is going to reveal the glory of God? It's going to be his church. It's going to be his disciples. There's a lot more going on there in Isaiah 40 that we could get into, but, but I want you to see here that Jesus talked about in the Old Testament that the glory of God would be revealed. And how would it be revealed? Through his 
disciples, through his people, through his church. And so what was prophesied and taught about Jesus, that he would fulfill all that was said about the Messiah in the Old Testament, it has happened. It is happening. And he wants his disciples to know. And now he says, hey, listen, I'm giving you a charge. I'm giving you a role. And here's what it is. Look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. A short, pretty simple verse, but loaded. You are witnesses of these things. They are eyewitnesses, these 11, to the life of Jesus, his death, and now his resurrection. What's a witness? Right? You really thought about what, what, is a, what is a witness and how crucial a witness is. You see, as witnesses, they are to do something. If you go back to verse 47, they are to proclaim. They are to let it be known what they have seen. I remember when I was a 16-year-old kid, I hadn't been driving too long, and my brother and I shared this CJ7 Jeep that we put some money together to buy. And I remember um, one night I, was, I dropped my mom off at the high school, Newman Smith High School is where I went, I went to a buddy's house to pick something up, and then I was heading back to the high school, and I was at the intersection of Trinity Mills and Josie. So back in the day, all right, there was no George Bush, all right? And if you were going south on Josie to where Trinity Mills was, there was this big hill, right? I used to love that hill. My dad had a 1967 Volkswagen, so I used to Love it when I was learning to drive. I'd get up on that hill, and, and if nobody was behind me, I'd let that thing just roll down. I did. My brother and I were crazy. And so anyway, but I remember that hill. <laughs> and it was still, it was there at this time, and I'll never forget, I was going back to the high school to pick my mom up, and I pulled into the intersection because the, the opposite traffic had had a red light. And I pulled into the intersection, and all of a sudden, I just remember just, this collision, this big collision, the Jeep gets bounced back about 20 plus yards and start, it spins and, and gas goes all over the place, it smells. I remember people running to where I was. My legs were bleeding, I was all bruised and stuff like this. And I remember getting carried away because they were afraid it, it was gonna ignite or whatever. And so I got carried to the other side of the street and all of a sudden the ambulance and all this kind of stuff. So they put me in the ambulance and, and I remember, I, I don't know why this happened, but I got put in the ambulance with the guy who hit me, and his wife was in the shotgun. I'm like, this is very convenient. I mean, this is, and so I'm hanging out with the people who hit me, and I'm hearing, which is kind of interesting, I'm hearing that it's my fault, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, wait a second, I, I turned, they had the red light, they, so I'm just, I was devastated, so the whole way there, I'm like, this can't be happening, what? And so, I remember we get to the hospital, and Asking to fill out a report and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 and the word is, it's my fault. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what? How is that? You know, I'm just kind of going through. I'm this young 16-year-old kid. I'm like thinking, hmm, okay. And so I remember I spent about a week at home resting up and everything. Um, and I remember just phone calls that week and having to give you know, phone, you know, reports or whatever. And I'll never forget getting that phone call one day to say, hey, listen, uh, the insurance company and everybody has, has decided to side with you because you had four witnesses come forward and declare that of what they really saw and what really happened, that 
the couple, even though they denied it, truly did run a you know blatant red light. And so, um, and it was blatant. I mean, it was it was it was so blatant. And bless bless their hearts. I mean, really, there was there was some reasons they read the red light. Not because they were intoxicated. They just they were a little older. And so anyway, I don't I mean that funny, but they were they were, and I, maybe they shouldn't have been driving. But anyway, so. <laughs> I mean, that was just my final conclusion on that, all right? And I mean that in all grace and mercy. All grace and mercy. But I was so thankful, and I was reading this text this week, and when I thought about the word witness, that, that story came into my mind because I thought, I was so thankful for those witnesses because they, were, I, they, they saw it all. And, and here's what I was so thankful for. I wasn't just thankful that they saw it, but I was thankful that they came forward and proclaimed it and said something. That was crucial because they didn't have to, right? But they did, and that's what witnesses do. They, they see something, they say something about it, they proclaim it. And that's what Jesus has called these disciples to do. What has he called them to do? To proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins. That they're witnesses of Jesus who has died and risen again. And now they're to proclaim what? They're to declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And they're to declare two specific things here. First of all, the desired response of the gospel. And what's that? Repentance. Right? The desired response of the gospel is repentance. And then second, they're to communicate the effect of the gospel. And that's the forgiveness of Sins. And so what is repentance? When we hear this word repentance, maybe we know it, we're familiar with it. It means to turn, to change directions. In the Old Testament, it was turning to change directions from allegiance to idols to instead serve the living and true God. And so now the message turns, right, and embraces Jesus as the forgiveness of our sins that he offers. And so there are to be witnesses who proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to who? To the nations, it says right here. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so he tells his disciples, you're to be my witnesses beginning where? In Jerusalem. And then to the nations. Now this is a big change because what's been going on before is that the, the Jews were to carry the name of God to the world. But now... The disciples, the church, is now responsible to be witnesses of the hope of God in Jesus to all the peoples of all the nations. And this is God's plan that he told the disciples and the same that he wants for us as well. Remember what Jesus prayed. I want you to see this verse, John 17, verse 20. Jesus prayed to the Father. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. So who is he with? around him that day, the 12 disciples. But he says, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus was already praying about the witness of his disciples and even those that he would witness through? And you think about how just the beat just kept going on and, and, and how the witness of one got passed on. And you think, that's what Luke was doing, Right? And, and here he's, he's praying for those who would hear the message of the disciples. Guys, I don't know about you guys, but that includes us. 
And he prays this, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and I are, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that we would have this relationship with God through Jesus so that the world, here's the reason, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The world may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we too are to be those witnesses. I am thankful for our church that you're being witnesses in your hometown, in your Jerusalem, your surrounding areas, your Judea, your Samaria, and even to the othermost parts of the world. We had over 40 of our, our people trained over a month ago to be faithful proclaimers to those in their sphere of influence. We have those coming on Sunday and Wednesday who are going to neighborhoods surrounding our campus here to pray with people, to share the gospel with people. We have people going to Wichita, Kansas in the summer. We continue to support the work of churches being planted throughout uh, Lyon, France, and surrounding areas as well. And, and I could go on and on and on. And so that is what Jesus prayed for and wanted. And that's what he wants his church to do, and that's what many of you are doing, and I'm so thankful for that. But we just can't do it on our own, right? Neither could the disciples. This wasn't something that they were just going out on their own, right? Listen to what he says next. Look at verse 49, and this is crucial. Right? He says, behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands. He blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in temple praising God. And so Jesus says, you're to be my witnesses. You're to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The response and the benefit of Jesus' death and resurrection. You're to go declare that. But before you do, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. I want you to wait. Can you imagine that? And he, he, he's sharing all this with them, but he says, listen, wait. How many of us would just love that? You're like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna wait. But what is he telling them to wait for? He says, Jesus says here, I'm going to send forth what the Father promised upon you, clothing you with the power from on high. What did the Father promise? Remember John 14, 16 through 17? I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. That's the Holy Spirit, right? Do you remember what he said in John 16, seven through 11? I'm not gonna read it all, but I'll read the first part for you. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go, right? The helper will not come to you unless I go. Isn't that amazing thing that Jesus is saying, hey, it's better for you to have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you than for me to physically be with you here on earth? It's amazing. And so he's saying what the Father promised, Jesus says, I'm gonna send him. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And he, you are gonna be clothed with the power of the Spirit. Why? So that you can be witnesses, that you can be proclaimers. So what, what happens next, right, is amazing because here Jesus has been risen for 40 days. He appears to many over that time. 
And then he ascends to heaven where he is now, sitting at the right hand of God. And for 10 days, the disciples wait. And they obey Jesus. They go to Jerusalem. They go and they wait. They go praising God. They go full of joy over what they've heard because now they understand. And so they go for 10 days and and they wait. And then on the 50th day is the celebration of Pentecost. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, right, the Holy Spirit comes. And he starts to indwell these people. Some 120 people who are gathered in that room. And on that day, do you remember Peter stands up? filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit and declares the message of Jesus who suffered, who rose again, and he proclaims repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But they waited. They waited. See, we must be equipped with the Holy Spirit. That's what witnesses are. They're empowered. and They're equipped with the Holy Spirit. But what's significant here, and I want you to see this, is in verse 49, it says, they stayed in the city. But here's another part of this. What did they do? It says in Acts chapter one, uh, verse, sorry, I wrote that, uh, verse four through five, it says that they waited for what the Father had promised. And so here's what I want you to hear today, and if, if you hear anything, I want you to hear this. God gave them, Jesus gave them a clear command, and it was that they would wait. And we might read that, and we might say, okay, they, they just waited. But, but that is so significant. Because think about this. Why did Jesus want them to wait? Why did he not instantly send the Holy Spirit? Because you would think that would just kind of make sense. He goes, Holy Spirit comes. It just kind of orderly just makes sense. It, it just happened like that. But, but God had a plan. You see, Jesus wanted the disciples during these 10 days to surrender their lives to God's plan, will, and his mission, to ready their lives and invite God to act upon them in their life. And so how did the disciples surrender to Jesus' will and to his every word? Well, they waited. They waited. They didn't just wait just going like this and looking at their phones, right? Checking out, I wonder, wonder how many people liked his ascension, you know, and, or wonder what they think about, you know, the resurrection. Well, not, not many likes on that. There seems to be some kind of conspiracy going on. I mean, you know what I mean? Getting caught up on all that on Twitter and stuff. So I just, they, they weren't waiting like that, right? But they were waiting in prayer. They're waiting in prayer. And so what is prayer? Prayer is waiting on God, but not just that. It is God waiting on us so that he can draw near to us. You see, the time in the upper room in Jerusalem gave them pause. They needed that to reflect on Jesus' life, ministry, the Old Testament scriptures we talked about, the clear commands, the teachings of Jesus that he had given them, It was time for God to do a deep work in them, to root out whatever needed to be changed. And until that happened, they were not ready to serve in God's power. And at the end of 10 days, it appears to these disciples that their hearts were surrendered. They were ready for a move 
of the Spirit of God upon them. And when the Spirit of God came in power, they did exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. They witnessed to the multitudes gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. And the beat just went on and on and on and on to us. To where now we are told to wait as well. We're told to wait. Until Jesus returns, we are told to wait just like these disciples were called to wait. For those in here today who have trusted in Christ, his death and his resurrection, who have responded to that message with repentance from turning to whatever idols you have served or whatever God you have been in need to, to now serve the one true and living God, Jesus Christ, and you have benefited from that, the forgiveness of sins. So you have experienced that. You, like these disciples, are also called to be witnesses that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You, are, you have the Spirit of God indwelling in you. You have been sealed and guaranteed with the Holy Spirit. No one can take the Holy Spirit away from you, but I want you to hear this today. But we are continually called to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 tells us that. Paul says that. But it does not say this. It does not say fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. I believe Paul may have stated the idea of being filled with the Spirit this way. Let God keep on filling you up to the brim with his Spirit. And so this is something that happens daily. Right? We have one indwelling experience with the Holy Spirit. Right? One indwelling experience. But this idea of being filled with the Spirit, I believe is daily. I believe it's continually that it happens many, many, many different times, many different times. And so what does that mean? When we're being filled with the Holy Spirit, we're letting the Holy Spirit take control of us. You see, when we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit just doesn't come in and just you know, control us just like that. I mean, we are told here, we ready ourselves, just like we see with the disciples here, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this happens over and over and over again. Why is that? Because as Christians, many of us, it's easy to leak. <laughs> it is easy to leak. Though we have been filled in the past with the Holy Spirit, it's easy for us to gradually take back control of our lives. And so we've got to let the control of the, the Spirit not leak out, right? We can't let it leak out. But that's what happens Often, because what happens is we often like to take control. We let our control sneak back in. So this idea of being filled happens again and again. And, and, and how does this happen? When we wait on God, just like these disciples did. When we wait on God in prayer, allowing that indwelling Holy Spirit who's in us as believers to fill us and to control us. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? To, to be those witnesses that God has called us to do. We must, like these disciples, be people who practice waiting, who wait. That we wait in prayer, that we wait in the word of God, that we surrender our hearts to God, opening our hearts to him, speaking to him, listening to him, interacting with him, letting him work on our heart in our life. And that's what God did in those 10 days with the disciples. And that's what he continually wants to do with us. Why? Because he wants us to be ready and bold witnesses 
for him. For him. And so church, as we wrap up Luke, I want to encourage us to be ready. To be ready ourselves. To wait on him. To humble ourselves. Surrender ourselves to the Lord. To his word. As we pray to him. And let him act upon us. Let God fill us daily with his spirit. And he's wanting to do that so that we can be empowered and used as his church, as his witnesses to the nations, beginning right here in our Jerusalem. Let me pray.